Hello, beloved survivors. My name is Autumn Brown, and this is How to Survive the End of the World, a podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. We've been talking a lot about how the pandemic has fundamentally altered our lives. For me, this calls to mind another life-altering change that happened in our lifetimes, but happened more slowly than the pandemic. The advent of the internet. Um, the apocalypse that I think about often has like a uh, like big shortage of electricity and almost no Wi-Fi or internet. So um, that would be like, oh wait, I can't play Roblox anymore. I can't play Sea of Thieves anymore. I can't uh, do Adventure Academy for learning time anymore. The other voice you are hearing is my eldest child, Finn. We've been recording our conversations about apocalypse survival. ...to include a lack of internet. And yet, one of the things that's happening right now is that like we are experiencing this global pandemic that's like changing the way the world like operates. And yet, the internet is still a part of our daily lives. And in fact, people are more reliant on the internet than ever before. And that makes me wonder about my idea that apocalypse means absence of internet. Maybe it doesn't. Even those of us whose lives have spanned the time between the internet being a newfangled phenomena to a ubiquitous part of everyday life now rely on the internet for our jobs, to educate ourselves, to buy essential goods. And now more than ever, we are reliant on the internet to satisfy our basic needs and desires. Which begs the question, what are apocalypse survival skills for the internet? How do we use the internet as a tool for survival? How do we maintain safety for our communities, for our movements for social change, when so much of that work must now happen digitally? And what would happen if the internet was no longer accessible to us? For answers, I turn to my genius friend, Bex Hong Hurwitz. Bex is an enthusiastic breaker and maker of technology for social justice. They see holistic security as one of many superpowers that social justice movements have to care for one another, to be more sustainable, and to stand stronger against injustice. To Bex, digital security and safety issues are directly connected to the ways that we can better design, use, and regulate technologies for social justice. Bex is a part of queer and Korean adoptee movements in the US, and they find inspiration and wisdom in working alongside others with the deep understanding that our liberation is linked. Bex was a co-founder of the Technology Cooperative Research Action Design and currently runs the digital security organization, Tiny Gigantic. I met Bex through our work with the Kairos Fellowship and have been delighted to experience my own digital security upgrade under their tutelage. I hope you find this conversation as refreshing and useful as I did. Bex, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited that you're here. Um, there's a lot that we're going to be trying to cover in this conversation about digital security in end times, right? Like the, you know, for the sake of our listeners, um, the context for this conversation is really about digital security and the way that the internet is changing inside of apocalyptic conditions. But before we went into some of those nitty gritty kind of questions, I wanted to kind of zoom out and ask you um, this question that I've been actually wanting to hear you answer since I met you for the first time, which is, <laughs> what, what is the internet, Bex? <laughs> I love this question. Um, the internet is so many different things. Um, and my absolute favorite thing about the internet is that it's a series of tubes. It's, um, it's actually okay. physical infrastructure. <laughs> Um, like, and much of which is miles and miles and miles of cables that run under oceans. They run along up and down, um, different land masses. And those cables are what we use to send data really fast and really far to each other. Um, <laughs> it's my so it's favorite like part. veins in the body. It's like veins in the body. Yeah. And my favorite part about that is that, um, just like thinking about the scale of that and the fact of that fills me with a feeling of wonder. 
Mm. Um, it makes me feel like the internet is a place of fantastic possibility. Um, mm. So I get really excited when I think about that. Um, and then, of course, the internet is also everything we do with this possibility. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, Good, you know, bad and the ugly. <laughs> yeah. It's also like a great and amazing place for us to come together and be ourselves in whatever that means, like be, uh, in social, political, spiritual ways. Um, and it's a place for us to do that in transformative ways and also in incredibly regressive and violent ways and everything in between. Mm. Um, yeah, I was thinking there's like one more piece that I think is really important when we think about digital security, which is that the internet is also this very complex web of power and control. Um, and that's, uh, some of the parts are the languages and protocols that we use to send and receive data across the tubes. Um, some of this is ownership and stewardship of parts and pieces of the infrastructure or the content. Um, a, a big piece of this is who has the access and ability to get to imagine and design and create any parts of the internet. Hmm. Um, and then of course, social, political and legal regulation. Right, right. And when you say like, who gets to imagine and create parts of the internet, can you give an example of what you mean by a part? Like, are we saying like a website? Are we saying like a, um, a social media network? Are we saying like a brow, like a way that people browse the internet or access it? Like what are the, maybe, maybe you're talking about all of those things, but what's the scale that you're thinking of when you say imagine and create the way we use the internet? Yeah. I think all of the things you mentioned and more, I mean, I think, you know, sometimes when we, think about what the internet is or when people imagine it and get to speak about what they think it is. Like people talk about the internet as being um, a profound, like a social change, like a tool of social change. So it's even mm. like imagining what the potential of that social change could be. Um, mm. Mm. Well, right. And actually it's such a, um, a great <laughs> um, a connection point to this question that I wanted to ask you about like, about that promise of change versus the the reality that we experience, because I know that, you know, in my own um, not very uh, like depthful study of the internet <laughs> and the arc of the internet, um, I, I feel like I can really see that there's a difference between what was promised to society with the advent of the internet and what we actually have, right? That like when the internet came online, um, there was a sense that this was going to be like a, that there was going to be a real democratization of knowledge or a democratizing function that the internet played in society. And, um, and it seems like what's actually happened uh, is quite different than that. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, about that difference between what we, what we expected or what we were told this was going to be versus what it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting frame on the question too. Cause I think the question about what we were told, um, one of the things about like what we thought was possible with the internet is like, who was asked to tell us what they imagined was possible whose ideas got heard and whose ideas got amplified and repeated about what mm. the internet could or should be um, and who wasn't involved in that, you know? Um, so, so one thing is, um, so that's one question. And I think it's, it right. uh, offers us an opportunity to like start asking more people now what the internet is to them um, and what the promise of it is to them and um, uh, to get a handle on where we are now and where we could mm -hmm. go. I was mm -hmm. thinking about, there are these two really amazing um, sort of visioning projects and, and not just visioning, but creation products projects. Um, one is the Feminist Principles of the Internet, that um, Association for Progressive Communication um, uh, coordinated with, uh, with a bunch of other activists, um, mm. people who work in sexual rights, women's rights, violence against women and internet rights work. They got together and, and asked this question, what would be the feminist principles of the internet. Just so like imagine a feminist internet. Wow. Um, and imagine what's possible in that, in that frame. 
And they came up with all these principles. They're really beautiful. They're online at feministinternet.org. And they the sort of in the show notes for sure. Yeah. And the sort of headlines are they thought about access, movements, economy, expression, and embodiment. And like nowhere in the early um, in the early like interviews, at least with US um, techies, where where I think were we hearing people talking about um, many of these things. Mm. Um, and so it's a question of perspective in some ways. Yeah. Um, and then I think the, you know, there's actually, I, I don't know how incorrect everybody was. <laughs> I think that there were little bits of truth in um, what people thought was possible and even what was, you know, people were speaking, even maybe from their personal experience. It's just that your personal experience is limited to you um, and people with your own privilege generally. And I, I think so there's some of the who got to talk and then also like it's it's really quite hard to predict the complexity of how things would change over time. Hmm. Like the early internet really looked like a series of tubes <laughs> without so many rules yet. We hadn't made so many decisions and so many people hadn't decided that they could try to monopolize different pieces of the internet to make money. Um, hmm. So it had a different kind of potential in that moment, I think, in terms of democratizing knowledge um we didn't know for instance that the backbone of the business of the internet would become advertising um we didn't know how valuable that would become for surveillance and government control Hmm. Um, we didn't know how computers and computing would change um so that's all and can you can you give uh just again for people like myself lay people who don't (laughs) know how computers work um can you talk a little bit about like what what are some of the ways that computers and computing has changed that would then influence how the internet changed over the last like what are we saying 30 years sure yeah i mean i guess like the early well so computers we are faster we can they can send and receive more information now than well, you know this because your computer today can send and receive more information than the computer you had maybe 10 years ago, right? right. Or even three right. years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, <laughs> so there's something about the speed that really changes what we're able to do and imagine communicating. You know, like I can stream Netflix all day if I have the right data connection and the right computer today, whereas 30 years ago, I could send a text message essentially to somebody by posting it on a bulletin board somewhere. <laughs> right, um, right. So there's some of that, just like that changed. And so then the way that we manage sharing all that information and then, yeah, just it opens up. Mm, then, yeah, I guess maybe if, if an early understanding of the internet was it was really very text-based and the most exciting thing that we, we were thinking about was hypertext which is very exciting, um, like nonlinear text, what it would mean to, to tell stories in nonlinear ways or to connect information in um, nonlinear ways to now where we're wondering what it would be like to have like a, an internet-based virtual reality experience. Um, mm. Just that's, and maybe that's just, and linking that just to like the ability to send that much more data now. Right, right. Wow, that's so interesting. It's also, it is interesting just to think in, inside my own experience of the difference in how I relate to technology now versus how I related to technology when I was in college. Um, and also what my expectations are of what I should be able to do with technology and with the internet now versus what my expectations were, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I think that, like, there is a piece here around expectation to me that links to power and privilege as you were lifting it up earlier in mm-hmm. your response to my first question. Um, and I mean, I think it, especially right now, as we are living through this pandemic moment where people are more and more reliant on the internet than ever, and then we're starting to see how differently people are able to access the internet based on um, 
stratifications in society um, and based on where power and privilege live in society. Um, I think I think it's like another place where the pandemic ex- is exposing stratification and um, oppression and dynamics of oppression that have always been there. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about how the internet and how we use it is stratified in society and then how people's expectations of what they can and should be able to do with the internet are different based on some of that stratification on race, class, ability, gender. Yeah. Um, Well, let's see. I think one thing about the internet, like my first thought around this is that the internet works great if you are able to read and write in English. Um, Mm. and, and so that's already, that's already a lot of hurdles there. Um, a lot of assumptions about who, who's, or not assumptions, but a lot of like requirements of somebody to use the internet. Mm. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's, that's the first place where I would start. I think, um, uh, and then, and then there's ability. So if I, if I, um, if I am like unable to read, if I have a sight disability, um, if I'm unable to use like the sort of physical tools of a computer, um, a keyboard or a mouse, um, how what does the internet become to me at that point? Like, and yeah. how how usable is it? How, how how what access do I really have to the content that's there? Um, and so that's that's one way that I think it's deeply stratified. Mm-hmm. There's another piece which is around the information that's there and whether whether it's just at a base level, is it relevant to you or not? Mm. Um, we don't I don't think we talk about this one as much because especially in the US, I think we have um, a pretty dominant model about who is using the internet and why it's so useful for them. You know, maybe it's like, uh, yeah, maybe it's this person a, off, a person who works in an office who's able to take their home their work home with them during the time of the pandemic. And then we assume that the content on the online is great because that's the user that we're assuming as like mm. the primary user of the internet. Um, but, um, but that's, that's obviously not the world. And in fact, um, there's more people in the world using the internet and the more people in the world than there are people creating content for the internet. Um, and so there's a piece which is like, is the information even relevant? And that's a stratification as well. Like yeah. why, um, there's, there's access and cost. So access comes, like, we can ask questions about how we access the internet along a bunch of different axes. We can think about what is, what's the cost to me for, um, to get a data connection to the internet? What can I, uh, what's the cost of a device, like a computer or a phone? Right. Which one do I, which one can I use? And then what part of the internet do I get access to based on that? Um, uh, there's there have been studies done uh, where people who mostly access the internet via their smartphones are are asked if they use the internet or if they use Facebook and and actually it turns out that a lot of times people use Facebook but they don't understand that they're also on the internet when they're doing that. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So there's this question of like, what do people think they're accessing and how is that really limited? And that's like most of that Facebook example is about. I think it's about information relevancy and it's also about the um, monopolization of, of the internet by Facebook. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So much so that, that people using Facebook can sort of be in like a closed universe or perceive themselves to be in a closed universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's one more piece too that I, um, which is around the models that are built into computers and smartphones at this point too. Like, um, I don't know if there are people in your life, um, but there are people in my life who haven't always, like, they've come to computers fairly late in their lives. And, like, the, I get asked a lot of questions about where, is, where did I put this file or what, what was that? What did I just open? And, I, and it's I feel clear like you that you get asked more questions like that than I probably do. <laughs> that might be I'm true. Like, analog compared to my life. <laughs> That might be true, but I, I feel like this is another piece of, it's kind of a literacy piece. It's like a computer literacy piece where the models of, that we use when we're making computers, like they're, 
they have their own logic. It's not it's not totally obvious how to use a computer. If you sit somebody in yeah. front of one, they still need they still need support <laughs> to learn how to use it. Um, totally. So that's another piece. Yeah. Oh, that's really, really, really interesting. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm like still processing what you just shared about people <laughs> being asked whether they're using the internet or Facebook and, and folks not because of that literacy piece, not necessarily realizing that being on Facebook means that they are on the internet, um, mm -hmm. which feels like it feeds back into this broader question about like, what is the internet and how do people even understand the, um, like the process by which they're receiving information. And, yeah. and you know, and is it like, and to me, there there then becomes this question around safety, because and it's you know part of why I wanted to talk to you because of the fact that your work is in digital security and you're you're thinking about safety and access as a part of what you do, and it, it just raises a question for me about like can people be using something safely if they don't know what it is, right? <laughs> like, is question. it possible to use the internet safely if you? <laughs> understand what the internet is is it possible to use a website even a website like facebook safely if you don't understand what it means when you're putting information into that site or getting information out of it yeah this is such a good question i i think the answer is we have to understand who we're getting like we have to start to think about using the internet and as getting into a relationship with different people who have different values and maybe goals for being there and um, hosting space <laughs> on the internet. Mm. So, and, and um, really asking about like, what are the expectations between myself and this entity and is it going to be met? So for instance, with Facebook, it's like, I'm getting into a relationship with this company that time and time again has shown that what they want me to do is use their tool a lot so that they can then monetize my use and sell advertisement to me. Um, and that they'll actually do that to my great detriment, they'll do it. Um, they'll use that data to box people out of um, housing markets. If um, they, they, it's been shown that there's like been a correlate, or that Facebook has sold advertisement placement for um, people in real estate and allowed them to not advertise to people who are black. Wow. Um, yeah. It's like, you know, it's, this I is a company. <laughs> no, well, that's, but, but we are because it's like, okay, we, maybe we assume that we're getting into a relationship with this person that's going to try to sell us pants or like shoes or, right, like, <laughs> or okay, the next I'm movie on Netflix. Pants, but I'm doing it anyway. Yeah, not that I'm going to get digitally redlined. Like, right. That's... <laughs> right, right. So, so I, I think we have, I mean, I think that's what we've been doing a lot in the last five years is like reckoning with this, who we're getting into relationships with. Um, and who these companies have allowed to become, because I think back to this idea of like, what were we promised with the internet? Early companies on the internet, at least from the US, spewed a lot of nonsense about um, freedom and, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, um, and, in, and then we're actually building these kind of like advertising machines. Right, right, of course. And of course the freedom that they're talking about is the freedom of money, not the freedom of people, right? Yeah, the freedom <laughs> to capitalize your use of my software. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I yeah. think like, you know, it's, it, it's like the political training that we all have inside of movement spaces is, you know, um, in a way is about being able to recognize those narratives for what they are, right? That like that, like when, when our government or corporations are using the word freedom, they're never meaning liberation. Right. And, <laughs> and yet we're, you know, and yet so many of us inside of social movements or inside of radical movements are still, you know, we're like, we're hooked into these devices in the same way that like the rest of the world is. Um, which, you know, which brings me to a, um, a kind of different line of, of thought that I wanted to go down with you, um, which is about like, you know, what are the other ways that, that we are using the internet and that we can use the internet? So, you know, you and I met through <clears throat> our work with the Kairos Fellows mm -hmm. and um, which isn't for our listeners, the Kairos program is a program that supports um, 
people of color who are organizers to learn digital strategy for organizing. And, you know, I, I am like, someone who has only really ever been on the receiving end of digital organizing. <laughs> you know, I've never, I, I, my organizing work was never really in digital. Um, but I'm curious, you know, for context setting, if you could talk a little bit about like the, um, yeah, liberatory uses of the internet, what are some of the organizing strategies that are available to people through and because of the internet that are not available outside of the internet? Like why, why would we, why would we take our organizing into some of these platforms? What can we do there that we can't do elsewhere? Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's not, it's, uh, I don't know why this is so hard to think about, but (laughs) I was, I was just. We can do there that we can't do elsewhere. Yeah, that wouldn't be better done somewhere else. Um, I mean, I will say this morning, um, I was in this amazing space that was hosted by the Dream Defenders. They're hosting Sunday school um, meetups, which are, it's a space for like spirituality, creativity, and transformative organizing. Mm. Um, Oh my God. And it was such a beautiful space. And they were using a, a digital video conferencing platform that we're all using and it didn't feel like it. <laughs> I wow. felt inspired. I felt like I was making something. I felt um, like it felt emotionally evocative. I felt um, reconnected to the moment and myself in this moment. I, you know, um, and I think that's a great testament to what's possible. And it's, but that's um, that's a bunch of really wonderful organizers um, knowing how to create really moving, transformative space. They could definitely do it offline and they're, um, and they're, they're, yeah, they, and they understood or they really worked at making the space online as well that felt as held. Um, mm. And so I think that's absolutely possible um, because of this morning. Right. <laughs> if you'd asked me I'm yesterday, sure. I would not have had that example to share. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> um, then, but I do think uh, it really, it is a great place for mobilizing. So moving a lot of people really fast. Um, it, that doesn't necessarily translate as we know into long-term power shift or building. Um, Mm. but we have seen time and time again, the ability to use different platforms where a lot of people are to turn people out to an event or an uprising as it might be. Mm. Um, I, I think. Are you thinking when you say, when you say uprising, are you thinking like the uprising in Cairo or are you thinking? Absolutely. I am. Yeah. I'm thinking about, um, uh, activists posting on Facebook and calling for people to be out in the streets, posting on Twitter, and like continuously many different activists posting more and more content. Um, and then, um, and so many people being online on Facebook. Um, uh, and that, that all of those calls, and then the fact that so many people were already on Facebook as a space, like really impacting the way that people turned out into the square. Mm, got it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it didn't turn. But it wasn't the same as having a long term political power, like a strategy to overtake political power, right? So we right. Um, so it's great for mobilization. I feel like we do see that a lot. Um, uh, I think I I think there's a lot of potential in um, strategies for using internet-based campaigns to talk about the impact of internet business on our lives more broadly. So like, like an example was the, the Amazon um, HQ that was meant to build, be built in Queens um, Mm. was, was strongly resisted by this like coalition of different types of organizers, people who were, who are primarily organizing around housing rights or labor rights. Some people who are organizing around digital rights um, but it, and then also people whose um, whose place of organizing is online, and so all coming together, seeing that that all of their issues met in resisting <laughs> the movement of Amazon, um, and yeah. and I think there's a lot of potential there because you know, like especially in this moment, we where we can really ask, we really need to ask a lot of questions about who are the workers that that make the internet go, um, and make internet services go, and what, what are their rights and what, yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting, right? That like, 
and especially, excuse me, in this like time when like when we think like who are the people who make the internet possible you know we have this like um hbo informed picture in our heads of like <laughs> who you know like right. uh, <laughs> and these, like you know like uh sort of like uh the cultural narrative of like the um white guy with glasses who is like working in a fairly pristine office space and like generating new ideas usually in partnership with other like white guys yeah (laughs) versus like you know some of the actions that have happened like the mayday action that happened just two days ago that was about you know one of the internet giants, right? Like bringing this like internet giant Amazon to its heels or trying to by, by forcing people to recognize, hey, like the essential workers that make this part of the internet go are people who are service workers who are working inside these factories with, under unsafe conditions or these distribution exactly. centers rather in unsafe conditions. And I think like that part of, like the place where the internet is, um, like meets our physical lives the the part of like the internet right now so many of us like functionally are accessing the internet for economic reasons right for like management of home and the place where that is actually <clears throat> like the the there's physical labor and physical risk associated with anything that we've purchased on the internet reaching us and so it feels like it has there's a way that this that this pandemic moment is like drawing us into a different kind of conversation about what it means to access services via the internet and who is at risk and who is safe and who then has decision making power around all of that mm-hmm. um so i really appreciate you like uplifting this piece around like yeah the internet has been useful for mobilizing people but it has been very challenging to use the internet as a space of building power in the long term. Yeah. Um, that feels, yeah, so important. I, I think one thing, like, I think when we think about change and the internet, there's a lot of, there is a lot of rhetoric around scale and speed and, and uh, around the internet, just again, like back to the first stories and the things that were told, the mythologies of the internet, um, like that it's fast and huge Um, but I do think that one of the opportunities that's available on the internet for us as organizers is to be small and slow, um, that Mm. it it is possible to create small private spaces using the internet, um, using internet tools, internet communication to, to maintain and build stronger our like very small and trustful, um, relationships as well. Wow. Can you just give some examples of what that looks yeah. like. I mean, like, I think yeah. that, I think that's <laughs> really, truly like my mind, I'm like, I don't even understand what you mean by slow, but I think it's like such a, <laughs> it's such a hard, um, uh, again, like shift in narrative, shift in expectation, mm-hmm. shift in like just how we've all been trained to relate to the internet, to imagine, yeah. A, a different scale of use that also involves the speed not being what we've what we're accustomed to it being. So mm-hmm. I think a couple of like concrete examples might be helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I'm in workshops, I often, especially when we're when I'm doing like digital security workshops where we're going to talk about being uncomfortable or unsafe on the internet, I usually start by asking people about their peak experiences on the internet, and and I hear a lot from people about small groups that they've been in. And so sometimes it's like, you might come to a small group um, of people who are interested in a specific set of like books in a specific tiny genre, and you found them in the comment section on a book reseller website or something. And then you suddenly had this group of people that you talked to about books. Um, or mm-hmm. you're in a, the, like the Kairos Fellowship, for example, like they have their own small spaces where they talk to each other. And it's a great source of both peer education and like developing the field um, and building those relationships. And it's not that we make these spaces because they're part of a deliverables package. Like we, we don't, it's not like, it's not like the campaigns that we might be developing for online and the way we think about online organizing that way, Mm -hmm. but it is, but it is a piece, right? It's like, 
just the relationship building piece. Mm. Yeah, right. The places that are fundamentally about relationship and happen with some level of like uh, a veil of security around them Mm -hmm. is something I'm hearing too. And I actually, I want to, I want to sort of take us there in this, in the direction around the conversation about security specifically. Um, But well, before we, before we go there, I wonder if um, still on this tip around like access and who is, who is having greater access or who is able to access the internet and who is not able to access the internet I'm wondering if like inside, if you can speak a little bit to inside this like pandemic moment that we're in, are you noticing any patterns around like how, how the way we use the internet itself might be changing because of this, um, because of social distancing, because of the fact that more, more people are those who can access it, more people are, are working from home and using the internet differently at home. Um, are there like, is there, are there patterns that are worth lifting up in terms of what might be changing about how people relate to the internet? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, this is a really complicated moment. And, um, if there's something that's good about it it's at least an opportunity to be with ourselves and to reflect on um to reflect and grow and heal on a personal level and I do think I hear people reflecting in different ways about their use of the internet I hear you know if maybe when the the social distancing restrictions started um there were so many calls to be online with other people all the time Mm. I, I heard pretty rapidly and sooner in organizing spaces than in my my other social spaces um, people reflecting on just the fatigue of that and the fact that that's they don't need just more time online with other people. Um, and so learning how to set also boundaries around how much time they were spending online with other people and starting to understand like the impact of that on their well-being in many different ways, whether it was their bodies or their, you know, their emotional states or or their ability to connect even in that space. Mm. So I, I think that's that's really, really valuable and it's something that we need to to do in general when we're using the internet and thinking about safety is like, how do I feel when I'm here? Um, you know, why do I feel judgmental when I'm on Facebook? Is it a place I want to be? <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> why do I, why do I feel like, can I show, do I feel like I really can show up in the zoom call with my videos on or do I feel more present when it's off? Mm. Okay. Um, so many questions I want to ask you right now. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could, if you can like um, tease this apart a little bit more when you talk about like the foundations of teaching people internet safety. Mm-hmm. And, and I know we're going to talk a little bit later about like digital security and the digital security, the internet organizing and some of the systemic strategies that you teach for how people can keep themselves safe on the internet. Mm-hmm. but can you tease this part uh, apart a little bit more about just being embodied and yeah. experiencing the internet, especially in this moment when people are having to palpably experience like the fatigue, the access issues, the like the physical illness related issues that come with being with the internet too much. I wonder if you can give some examples of like, what are the long-term impacts of like engaging with the internet too long, whether those are physical, emotional, mental health, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. I, I think it's probably different for everybody. And my, my, my thought about it is that we could all just be more aware. I mean, there's, I think starting with our bodies and how they actually feel is a good place. And it's, it's not a small thing to start there. Um, it's actually enough to think about, oh, when I sit at my computer, am I actually sitting in it in an orientation that's okay for my posture? Or like over the course of the day, is my body going to actually start to physically hurt? Um, mm. Have I thought about taking care of the other parts of my body and not just like the part of me that's paying attention to my computer? Do I have water near me? Do I take, do I stand up and take breaks? Like, am I, am I taking care of 
the the vessel that I'm in, this body. Um, I think there's like a much more complicated set of things to observe when we when we think about our like emotional selves in the internet. I, um, but I do I do think at least asking ourselves like, do I f- do I feel okay in this space? And if mm. not, is it something like is what 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 is the nature of a discomfort if there is one? You know, and I ask this about I ask this of people about social media often because um, because of the way that it there are so many like contentious and sort of polarized discussions that happen there. It's like clearly not a space and by design and by through use and whatever where we aren't we don't feel like we're we're able to see one another. We aren't there to see one another, um, mm. and and we're so there like to be seen. We're there to be seen or, you know, like maybe it's related. It would depend on like a different person, but it maybe it's because I'm sitting alone behind my screen and I literally have no feedback from you. Like I'm not engaging with you in a, in a physical language sort of way at all. Like I can't see your eyes when I'm chatting at you on Twitter or when I'm tweeting at you on Twitter. Right. Um, I can't feel, I can't feel my body in relationship to your body. I don't know if there's like, if there's friendly energy between us, if this is actually a joke, if there's space, if we're trying to hear each other, I don't, you know, I don't know. All I have is my interpretation of the words that I read. Um, Mm. And if you've ever like, and it's easy to read anything in whatever feeling you're in. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but have you ever received an email and you get it and you're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that person wrote me that thing that way. And then you take, I don't know, between two and 24 hours and you read it again and you realize you could read it in an entirely different way. Yes. It's like that piece too. You know, it's like we take, we just take our emotional state with us when we're on the internet because we're all there together ourselves. (laughs) And so like, it's even that piece. It's like being aware of that. I think like in the pandemic time, I've noticed this, especially around when I get, when I start reading news, that it can start to, I can start to build a certain reaction, like a certain state of emotions around news articles. And then I, I, um, I need to, I really need to pause myself and step away from it in order to, to not keep chasing stories that will make me feel a certain way. Mm, Totally. Wow. Yeah. I feel like I really appreciate the, what you just uplifted about the, the fact that like we may be in, we're engaging, especially if we're on like a platform like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter that we may be engaging in, um, an activity that has the illusion of us all being in the same place, but we're not actually, and we we're lacking all of the mechanisms of like, of physical reverberation and like empathic responses that happen when we're in person with people so that we can actually read and adjust how we're interacting based on the way people are actually experiencing us all that all of that is lacking um and I know for myself for sure that like I've had I've had experiences just like I think a lot everyone has had um inside these platforms of um either being um you know either you know having to like delete comments on things that are like completely inappropriate to um a space that I'm trying to create for a conversation like where what you know when have you ever seen a de-escalated fight on I don't know Twitter or right Facebook and like every now and then I do think there is an opportunity for like the one thing that I will say which is kind of a gray area that's related to this is that I do think every now and then political discourse does evolve like people push each other in a way where it grows and people build meaning behind different phrases or um even like across global campaigns, you know, like Black Lives Matter or like perfect, um, yeah, perfect example, right? Yeah, is like okay, that actually. I mean, I'm sure there were tons and tons of um, fights that just came head to head and didn't go anywhere as well, but there was also a tremendous amount of meaning making. Mm-hmm. We will be back with more of my conversation with Bex in a moment, but first an offering to our listeners. 
So many of us have lost beloveds to COVID-19, and so many of us will. We wanted to create space to honor those losses on the podcast. In the final episode of the series, we will read aloud the names of those who have been lost. If you wish to send the name of a loved one, please email it to us at howtosurvivepod at gmail.com. And please do include guidance on how to correctly pronounce your loved one's name. Grieving together is part of how we survive and how we remember life, and in so doing, remember how to live life fully. We hope you will let us hold a part of your grief. Okay, back to my conversation with Bex. So we've been talking about the, some of the security issues that are faced by movement organizers online. And I know that a significant part of the work that you do professionally is supporting organizers individually and you know, movement organizations um, to stay safe online. And I'm wondering if you can like zero in on what are the specific kinds of threats that are faced by movement organizers, social justice organizers in the digital realm. Um, and if you can share a little bit about some of the methods that you deploy to mitigate against those threats or to prevent them or to protect people from those threats. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a big, it's a big question and really organizers and change makers are, are facing the same digital security issues that everybody does online, but they're at much higher risk of these being used against them because of, because there are different kinds of people and organizations and entities that are feeling threatened by the ideas and like the visions that, and the change that they're leading. Um, so, um, so digital security really plays out and digital security issues play out really differently for activists. For instance, like everybody who has an email address is subject to phishing emails. Those emails that you get that are scams that ask you to, if you can please send money or if you can please log in because your account has been compromised or something. Um, and that's just, that's just a common scam on the internet. But if you're an activist, um, it's possible that um, somebody who thinks of you as an opponent um, could try to organize that kind of like phishing attempt against you and do some, do some deeper research, learn how your organization runs. We see a lot of um, what we call spear phishing, which is, an email that is sent, let's say someone has done some research and they send an email to your finance person and they, and from an email address that looks a lot like your ED's email address asking for like a financial transaction. Uh, we see a lot of this and like people catch it sometimes because the way that it's written doesn't sound quite right. Or like maybe the person never really would ask that question or you actually have a different system for doing financial transactions or somebody notices that the email isn't exactly right. But, um, but sometimes people succeed and can do a lot of damage um, getting financial information or getting big transfers made even. Yeah. I mean, another thing like that's, that's different for organizers and activists right now is that um, that online is a big, it's a really important place to be to be public and to represent yourself. And so there's a lot of harassment um, and online, and that plays out in a lot of ways too. You know, it might just be that somebody who, um, it might be someone who used to even work with an organization who, um, who becomes somehow, yeah, just somehow becomes an opponent of that organization for whatever reason. And then, and then launches a public attack online on social media, or or it might be some other group or entity that organizes doxing, um, which is um, which we see a lot against activists, where um, a group of people goes after, uh, tries to look for p- private information about you, so like information like um, names of family members and your addresses, mm. phone numbers, stuff like this, and then makes them public online, and and tries to organize um, an attack against you using that information. Um, like posting, posting, like posting your personal information online and encouraging other people yeah. to, exactly. to do the same or to go to your address or can you just, just I, yeah. I think doxing is one of those things that people, like we've all heard about people being doxxed, but I don't know that we that a lot of people have actually a lot of detail about like 
what it what it means to be doxxed and then like what are the long-term impacts of of that particular kind of threat yeah oh thanks for that question so there's there's a lot of information that's available about us online pretty freely there are um, there are sites that are called people finder sites that aggregate a lot of personal information about us that mostly is just out there from maybe from various advertising through time um, you know it's like old addresses that maybe catalogs had a hold of or when you placed an order on Amazon in the last five places you lived in <laughs> um, right right and right a lot of that information is is fairly public it's pretty easy for people to get at so um, so oftentimes um, in, in a doxing incident, at least that information gets gets looked for and turned up and shared publicly. And then, yeah, then there's often a call to use that information against you. So whether whether it's just like threats that are posted online, like I'm going to come to this address or, I'm, you know, threats that are made against people that you're related to um, or you're in relationship with. Um, and so short term, it's just deeply deeply um, harmful it's extremely violent it's like it feels very threatening and whether or not someone actually shows up um which sometimes people do there's this terrible practice called swatting which is where um people use your address and they call in um they call in an incident and basically get a swat team to show up to your house oh my god um, so it's terribly violent and um and outrageously stressful and it can really, in the short term, just totally stop you in your tracks. Um, it's, you know, it's extremely fear-producing. So so that's sort of a short term. I mean, that's a long-term thing, too. That lasts, that mm. feeling, that fear. Um, and, then, and then there's also this other sort of ways it can fan out into your financial um, life. You know, people can open credit, try to open lines of credit in your name with your personal information. Um, it can fan out across, like I was saying, like across your family members and your loved ones. They can start to get harassed also. Um, and so, and it's all it's all targeted at basically stopping you from, from doing what you're doing, living your life, doing right. your work, leading the change right. that you're leading. Um, and yeah, I, you know, long-term sometimes these things trickle out. It takes a lot of work though. It takes... Um, and it takes the person who's getting harassed to having a good set of humans around them who can really support them and help them both take care of themselves online and offline. It takes a lot of work um, organizing with, like, advocating for yourself on platforms where you need to be um, to try to stay, to be, to have those platforms help you as much as possible from getting harassed quite so much. Hmm. Um, and if you're, if you're open to it, it sometimes it, it can go, you can take it to police um, sometimes. Uh, so it can sometimes turn into like a legal case even. Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine too that there's really that people would get extremely variable results in terms of trying to address their concerns directly to the platforms where they're being harassed. Yeah. Yeah, I think the tools for us um, to, yeah, to even speak with the platforms are, they're, they're quite dull tools. Like, we can report handles sometimes, if you know, of, of harassing accounts. We can report email addresses, things like this. We can try to block things, like, one by one. Um, uh, and, and that's... That's still the work is on us to do that. Um, mm -hmm. there, there, and then discussions about, you know, discussions about whether or not a platform can automatically look for harassing language, automatically look for violent language, and sort of try to have that not be part of their platforms, like through, maybe through AI, through training their system to recognize, I don't know, hateful language, is a really hard problem to solve as well. Um, not only because hateful language isn't, um, super codifiable, but also because like sometimes harassment is as simple as somebody retweeting your last tweet, but because it's coming from a th like threatening account or because they add one sentence when they retweet it or something, it's actually, it's actually framed as a threat, right? 
but right, right. So all it's actually machine. about intention more yeah. so than it's about activity. Yeah, it's about context and yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think about that, like one of the jokes that I was making to my beloved a couple of days ago is that I feel like part of getting older means accruing a like increasing number of people that I don't fuck with anymore. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And like in the last year to year and a half of my life, I like that number went from like zero people to like five people, (laughs) you know, um, but like, not only do I not fuck with, but who I have like blocked on social mm-hmm. media platforms so that they don't have access to my life and that they can't, you know, be engaging with me in those spheres. Yeah. And, um, and I think that it's like, you know, it's like this, it's a, it's hard to, f- sometimes I think like as an organizer, it's like, it, it to me it relates back to this like um, this point that you made earlier about thinking about the internet spatially, because I think sometimes, especially for people like me who are like fairly analog, it's easy to think of um, some of the platforms that I occupy and like so the ways that I occupy those platforms as like relatively innocuous, mm-hmm. and to sort of think about blocking I I think up until the last couple of years of my life I perceived blocking people on social media as like a sort of petty behavior mm-hmm. or sort of like uh whatever like it's not that deep yeah. and and now what's my perspective on it has really shifted right that it's like oh actually there's there's absolutely an emotional and physical safety component of blocking other people's access to like a window into my life Um, especially because I don't know how those people may or may not use the information that they're able to get. Because when I'm making posts about my life on social media, I'm not necessarily thinking about how other people are going to use that information. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, like that, even that, like as a, as like a mental shift for me, like a cognitive leap that I had to make that like what I think of as like, maybe a relatively innocuous like picture that I might post on the internet of myself in a place mm-hmm. is actually information to someone right yeah <laughs> yeah it's like it's data and you know and that I and so I think that like there's that piece too that like that you know we don't think of our lives as we don't think of our lives and our experiences as data but in the sphere of the internet everything is data mm-hmm. and which and then depending on who has access to it it may or may not be useful to someone um and I think that like yeah I think that like that is a that I know is a a internal shift that I've had to make and that I'm still having to make because there I there's still places where I'm like really not secure um and and I'm just in the last couple of weeks have been really made aware of the fact that I need to be paying closer attention Mm. to this um, so I'm curious, like all that being said, I'm curious to know if you have like, um, if you have recommendations that you would make to people who want to be safer online, especially right now in this time when people are more, are online more of their lives than ever before. Um, yeah. many people, if there are recommendations that you would make for things that people can do right away to make themselves safer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of them are just sort of technical and um, you're probably, yeah, some of them are technical and basic and then some of them are like more transformative and more about how we collectively live online. Um, So on the basic level, um, now's a great time to remember to protect our accounts well, you know, make Mm -hmm. really long, long passwords and store them in password managers (laughs) and use two-factor authentication. and um, I, uh, for for many people, they've heard this before, but um, <laughs> but it's uh, I still talk to a lot of people, and a lot of folks are using the same passwords for for many different accounts, which is a real um, mm. which is a real risk, and it's it's easy to it's easy to um, 
mitigate that one. There are free password managers online. There are password managers available for small amounts of money. Um, and those password managers work like a filing cabinet for your passwords. Um, the companies that run those password managers, that software, um, their business is to keep that information very secure. Um, uh, and so um, you need one password to log into that account and then you store all the rest of them in there. It's kind of like right. storing your money in a bank. Um, they also, that software also at this point, like it has a lot of like password generating tools on it so you can make long complicated passwords and the password manager can remember them and you never have to. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, taking care of our machines. It's also, um, I just there. I just saw a new update for macOS come through and um, and got some questions uh, from folks. And it it is a good time to remember to do updates to you know I think what most of the time when we get updates when we get alerts to update our software it's because the companies are trying to push through security patches to us they've discovered some sort of security risk and have mm -hmm. um, updated their software. So installing our updates, um, installing a just a virus checker or anti-malware. Um, a free version is fine. Set it up to run every day. Um, other things that we can do right now that are sort of basics are creating a really private channel and keeping it clear. And a private channel online um, or digitally means encrypted, and it means end-to-end -end encrypted. So most people, I think a lot of activists are using Signal at this point, and that's end-to-end -end encrypted. Mm -hmm. um, and um, keeping it clear means making sure you're using all the features you can, setting a password on it, setting password on whatever device you use it on, using disappearing messages, making sure you don't keep data around that you don't need. Um, and then also keeping it clear means double-checking when you're talking to people that it's who you're talking to. So especially if you get a message from someone and it's a new number or their safety numbers have changed, just do a double check. Um, ask them to send a picture of them holding up a certain number of fingers. And then you know in that moment that it's really them on the other end of the line. Something mm, like this. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's a whole other level. Like. <laughs> Like, mom, is it really you? <laughs> <laughs> Just especially, especially when someone's asking for like, you know, pretty sensitive. If, if anybody asks for sensitive information, like, oh, can you remind me of the password to this platform? Get them to verify with you. Mm -hmm. um, and then the piece that I think is much is the transformative piece is really um, knowing about the risks, taking care of ourselves, and taking care of each other. So knowing that there are a lot of risks out there knowing that we're doing powerful things and we're challenging people and these risks might be used against us um, and knowing what we need um, in those times. Like if I am online and I'm experiencing harassment, what are the kinds of things that I might need? What are the kinds of things that will help me feel grounded? Do yeah. I, do I have people online and offline that I would turn to or things that I would do? Do I want to take a break? Can people help me out with that? Mm. Um, Knowing how things impact our collectives um, and taking care of each other, you know, um, noticing, you know, I think even in this moment, people noticing like screen burnout, um, taking care of each other around that, inviting each other not to use your video if you don't want to, um, is like a simple thing, you know, just um, collectively taking care of each other online. Mm. Um, and then the third piece of this is, is really around making a plan. So so one is knowing ourselves, the other one is figuring out ways to take care of each other, and then the third is making a plan together for when things, if if things go down, um, you know, talk with talk with your people, whoever they are, about possible risks that you're that you think you're you might see, and about what you all would like to do in those in in that event that it happens. That's so helpful. That's really really so helpful, right? That like, especially because these these threats, you know, they thrive and uh, they thrive inside of a space that, that can feel very isolating or isolated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So in, and, and oftentimes I feel like, especially the people who are 
some of these particular types of scams or phishing, these threats that come with like some shred of personal information mm-hmm. are sort of designed to make you feel like you can't talk to other people about the threat you received. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's relying on a shame response absolutely, <laughs> in yeah. order to be effective. And so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to make sure that, that, that there is collective planning and advanced collective planning that where we're anticipating that these kinds of threats are going to happen mm-hmm. and therefore anticipating what our response is, which then hopefully makes it easier for folks to come forward if they're being threatened in some way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that sense of isolation also, it's also triggered when, when something happens, like if we, if we are part of a financial scam, like we feel embarrassed and it's hard to talk to other people about it, but we actually really need a space to, to talk about it, to share that it happened, to talk about what the impacts are on ourselves and our organizing and you know our movements and things like this. Mm-hmm. Bex, this has been like so fascinating and I feel like, um, yeah, like my, I, I, I definitely feel like I'm having the experience that I'm thinking new thoughts that I have not thought before. And so um, that's a little overwhelming, but also really good. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for tuning in to the Apocalypse Survival mini-series of How to Survive the End of the World. We're over halfway through this series, and we're thrilled that y'all are listening and loving it. Upcoming episodes will look at reimagining healthcare access as our current economy of disaster capitalism continues to collapse. And we'll have an episode looking at the complex question of arming versus disarming, or how we protect ourselves in violent and chaotic conditions. How to Survive the End of the World is on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. We just want to take another moment to express our gratitude to all of you who have continued donating during the pandemic. And a special thanks to all of you who have become new patrons. We see you. We love you. Another really helpful thing you can do to help us sustain our show is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. <laughs> <laughs>